The dead man in the bath could be Mr. Levy. In fact, with him missing, it should be Mr. Levy. But it ain't Mr. Levy. Dorothy Sayers, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you. I know many of you have had to cancel your subscriptions, and I appreciate those who come back when they can. It really helps us out so we can keep going forward. And in case you're wondering, this is our family business. All of the money brought in goes to us. We have no sponsors or partners who get a cut. Just so you know where your money is going. And if you just want to shoot us a few bucks to say thanks, that's awesome. There's now a donate button on the website at classictalesaudiobooks.com where you can do just that. Apparently, in the last month or so, Audible has begun to host podcasts through their service, and they've included this one. I have an older phone, so I can't really see how it works, but I'm thrilled to be included. Feel free to review us on Audible if you get a chance. Looking for a unique Christmas gift? We've added even more designs to our merchandise site. Check out our merch store for unique gift ideas for yourself or a literature lover in your life. Everything is still 35% off. App users can hear To His Coy Mistress by Andrew Marvell in the special features portion for this week's episode. Now for our personal moment. Last week, Scylla got her hair done. She gets it dyed blue, and it's amazing. The salon is divided into sections with dividers for social distancing. Now, we have a Bluetooth speaker at home to listen to music. Same thing in our car. Scylla will sync her phone to the Bluetooth speaker or the car and play her music. Now, Scylla's music, it's different. It's heavily curated stuff from the 30s and 40s. Cole Porter, Benny Goodman, Carmen Miranda, that kind of stuff. You know, stuff no Gen Xer listens to but her. It's just, it's awesome. So, she went to get her hair done, and she saw that her stylist had a Bluetooth speaker. She thought, hey, I'll sync my phone to the speaker and I can hear my music during the session, instead of the other stuff that's always playing around. So she looks at her phone and she syncs it to the speaker. Do you want to connect to this Bluetooth speaker? Sure. So she starts playing her Carmen Miranda Quanta Legusta music, and she hears it, but it doesn't come out from the speaker in her booth. She's connected to another stylist's speaker in another booth. But the music is so unique and different, and nobody knows where it's coming from. They all just kind of look at each other and don't comment. Nobody says anything. So, Scylla lets it play. For two hours. Two hours of Billie Holiday, Cole Porter, Benny Goodman, and all the rest of it. Does she say anything? No. She finishes, she pays, and she leaves. You can't always get what you want, but sometimes, I guess you can. And that's our personal moment for the week. And now, Whose Body? Part 2 of 7 by Dorothy Sayers. As they emerged into the gloom and gleam of Piccadilly, Whimsy stopped short, 
with a little exclamation. Wait a second, he said. I've thought of something. If Sugg's there, he'll make trouble. I must short-circuit him. He ran back, and the other two men employed a few minutes of his absence in capturing a taxi. Inspector Sugg and a subordinate, Cerberus, were on guard at 59 Queen Caroline Mansions, and showed no disposition to admit unofficial inquirers. Parker, indeed, they could not easily turn away, but Lord Peter found himself confronted with a surly manner, and what Lord Beaconsfield described as a masterly inactivity. It was in vain that Lord Peter pleaded that he had been retained by Mrs. Thipps on behalf of her son. "'Retained?' said Inspector Sugg with a snort. "'She'll be retained if she doesn't look out. Shouldn't wonder if she wasn't in it herself. Only she's so deaf she's no good for anything at all.' "'Look here, Inspector,' said Lord Peter. "'What's the use of being so bally-obstructive? You'd much better let me in. You know I'll get there in the end.' "'Dash it all, it's not as if I was taking the bread out of your children's mouths. "'Nobody paid me for finding Lord Attenbury's emeralds for you.' "'It's my duty to keep out the public,' said Inspector Sugg morosely. "'And it's going to stay out.' "'I never said anything about your keeping out of the public,' said Lord Peter, easily, "'sitting down on the staircase to thrash the matter out comfortably. "'Though I've no doubt Pussyfoot's a good thing on principle,' if not exaggerated, the golden mean, Sug, as Aristotle says, keeps you from being a golden ass. Ever been a golden ass, Sug? I have. It would take a whole rose garden to cure me, Sug. You are my garden of beautiful roses, my own rose, my one rose, that's you. I'm not going to stay any longer talking to you, said the harassed Sug. It's bad enough. Hello? "'Drat that telephone here. Cawthorn, go and see what it is. "'That old catamaran will let you into the room, "'shutting herself up there and screaming,' said the inspector. "'It's enough to make a man give up crime and take to hedging and ditching.' "'The constable came back. "'It's from the yard, sir,' he said, coughing apologetically. "'The chief says every facility is to... "'Be given to Lord Peter Whimsy, sir. Um, "'He stood apart noncommittally, glazing his eyes. Five aces,' said Lord Peter cheerfully. "'The chief's a dear friend of my mother's. "'No go, Sug. "'It's no good bucking you've got a full house. "'I'm going to make it a bit fuller.' "'He walked in with his followers. "'The body had been removed a few hours previously.' and when the bathroom and the whole flat had been explored by the naked eye and the camera of the competent bunter, it became evident that the real problem of the household was old Mrs. Thipps. Her son and servant had both been removed, and it appeared that they had no friends in town, beyond a few business acquaintances of Thipps, whose very addresses the old lady did not know. The other flats in the building were occupied respectively by a family of seven, at present departed to winter abroad, an elderly Indian colonel of ferocious manners, who lived alone with an Indian manservant, and a highly respectable family on the third floor, whom the disturbance over their heads had outraged to the last degree. The husband indeed, when appealed to by Lord Peter, showed a little human weakness, but Mrs. Appledore, 
appearing suddenly in a warm dressing-gown, extricated him from the difficulties into which he was carelessly wandering. "'I am sorry,' she said. "'I'm afraid we can't interfere in any way. "'This is a very unpleasant business, Mr. "'I'm afraid I didn't catch your name, "'and we have always found it better not to be mixed up with the police. "'Of course, if the Thipses are innocent, "'and I am sure I hope they are, "'it is very unfortunate for them, "'but I must say that the circumstances seem to me most suspicious, "'and to Theophilus, too, "'and I should not like to have it said that we had assisted murderers.' "'You might even be supposed to be accessories. "'Of course, you are young, Mr... Uh, "'This is Lord Peter Whimsy, my dear,' said Theophilus mildly. "'She was unimpressed. "'Ah, yes,' she said. "'I believe you are distantly related to my late cousin, "'the Bishop of Carisbrook, poor man. "'He was always being taken in by impostors. "'He died without ever learning any better. "'I imagine you'd take after him, Lord Peter.' "'I doubt it,' said Lord Peter.' So far as I know, he is only a connection, though it's a wise child that knows its own father. I congratulate you, dear lady, on taking after the other side of the family. You'll forgive my butting in upon you like this in the middle of the night, though. As you say, it's all in the family, and I'm sure I'm very much obliged to you, and for permitting me to admire that awfully fetching thing you've got on. Now don't you worry, Mr. Appledore— "'I'm thinking the best thing I can do "'is to trundle the old lady down to my mother "'and take her out of your way. "'Otherwise you might be finding your Christian feelings "'getting the better of you some fine day, "'and there's nothing like Christian feelings "'for upsetting a man's domestic comfort. "'Good night, sir. Good night, dear lady. "'It's simply ripping of like this.' "'Well,' said Mrs. Appledore, "'as the door closed behind him, "'and... "'I thank the goodness and the grace that on my birth have smiled,' said Lord Peter, "'and taught me to be bestially impertinent when I choose. Cat!' Two a.m. saw Lord Peter Whimsey arrive in a friend's car at the Dower House, Denver Castle, in company with a deaf and aged lady and an antique portmanteau. "'It's very nice to see you, dear,' said the Dowager Duchess placidly. She was a small, plump woman, with perfectly white hair and exquisite hands. In feature, she was as unlike her second son as she was like him in character. Her black eyes twinkled cheerfully, and her manners and movements were marked with a neat and rapid decision. She wore a charming wrap from Liberty's, and sat watching Lord Peter eat cold beef and cheese, as though his arrival in such incongruous circumstances and company were the most ordinary event possible which with him, indeed, it was. "'Have you got the old lady to bed?' asked Lord Peter. "'Oh, yes, dear. Such a striking old person, isn't she? And very courageous. She tells me she has never been in a motor-car before, but she thinks you a very nice lad, dear. That careful of her, you remind her of her own son. Poor little Mr. Phipps. Whatever made your friend the inspector—' "'Think he could have murdered anybody?' "'My friend the inspector—no, no more, thank you, mother— "'is determined to prove that the intrusive person in Thipps's bath "'is Sir Reuben Levy, who disappeared mysteriously from his house last night. "'His line of reasoning is, "'We've lost a middle-aged gentleman without any clothes on in Park Lane. "'We've found a middle-aged gentleman without any clothes on in Battersea. "'Therefore—' 
they're one and the same, Q-E-D, and put little thips in quad. You're very elliptical, dear, said the Duchess mildly. Why should Mr. Thips be arrested, even if they are the same? Sug must arrest somebody, said Lord Peter. But there is one odd little bit of evidence come out, which goes a long way to support Sugg's theory, only that I know it will be no go by the evidence of my own eyes. Last night, at about 9.15, a young woman was strolling up the Battersea Park Road, for purposes best known to herself, when she saw a gentleman in a fur coat and top hat sauntering along under an umbrella, looking at the names of all the streets. He looked a bit out of place, so not being a shy girl, you see, she walked up to him and said, "'Good evening.' "'Can you tell me, please,' says the mysterious stranger, "'whether this street leads into Prince of Wales Road?' She said it did, and further asked him, in a jocular manner, what he was doing with himself and all the rest of it. Only she wasn't altogether so explicit about that part of the conversation, because she was unburdening her heart to Sug, you see, and he's paid by a grateful country to have very pure, high-minded ideals, what?' Anyway, the old boy said he couldn't attend to her just then, as he had an appointment. I've got to go and see a man, my dear, was how she said he put it, and he walked up on Alexandra Avenue toward Prince of Wales Road. She was staring after him, still rather surprised, when she was joined by a friend of hers, who said, It's no good wasting your time with him. That's Levy. I knew him when I lived in the West End, and the girls used to call him P. Green Incorruptible, friend's names suppressed, owing to implications of story, but girl vouches for what was said. She thought no more about it till the milkman brought news this morning of the excitement of Queen Caroline Mansions. Then she went round, though not liking the police as a rule, and asked the man there whether the dead gentleman had a beard and glasses. Told he had glasses but no beard, she incautiously said, "'Oh, then it isn't him.' "'And the man said, "'Isn't who?' "'And collared her. "'That's her story. "'Sugg's delighted, of course, "'and quadded thips on the strength of it.' "'Dear me,' said the Duchess, "'I hope the poor girl won't get into trouble. "'Shouldn't think so,' said Lord Peter. "'Thips is the one that's going to get it in the neck. "'Besides, he's done a silly thing. "'I got that out of Sugg, too, "'though he was sitting tight on the information.' Seems Thips got into a confusion about the train he took back from Manchester. Said first he got home at ten-thirty. Then they pumped Gladys Horrocks, who let out that he wasn't back till after eleven-forty-five. Then Thips, being asked to explain the discrepancy, stammers and bungles and says, first that he missed the train. Then Sugg makes inquiries at St. Pancras, and discovers that he left a bag in the cloakroom there at ten. Thips again asked to explain, "'Stammer's worse, and says he walked about for a few hours, "'met a friend, can't say who, didn't meet a friend, "'can't say what he did with his time, "'can explain why he didn't go back for his bag, "'can't say what time he did get in, "'can't explain how he got a bruise on his forehead, "'in fact, can't explain himself at all.' "'Gladys Horrocks interrogated again. "'Says this time, Thips came in at ten-thirty, "'then admits she didn't hear him come in.' Can't say why she didn't hear him come in. Can't say why she said, first of all, that she did hear him. Burst into tears, contradicts herself, everybody's suspicion roused, quorum both. 
As you put it, dear, said the Duchess, it all sounds very confusing and not quite respectable. Poor little Mr. Thipps would be terribly upset by anything that wasn't respectable. I wonder what he did with himself, said Lord Peter thoughtfully. I really don't think he was committing a murder. Besides, I believe the fellow has been dead a day or two, though it don't do to build too much on doctor's evidence. It's an entertaining little problem. Very curious, dear, but so sad about poor Sir Reuben. I must write a few lines to Lady Levy. I used to know her quite well, you know, dear, down in Hampshire, when she was a girl. Christine Ford she was then, and I remember so well the dreadful trouble there was about her marrying a Jew. That was before he made his money, of course, in that oil business out in America. The family wanted her to marry Julian Freak, who did so well afterwards and was connected with the family. But she fell in love with this Mr. Levy and eloped with him. He was very handsome then, you know, dear, in a foreign-looking way. But he hadn't any means, and the Fords didn't like his religion. Of course, we're all Jews nowadays, and they wouldn't have minded so much if he'd pretended to be something else, like that Mr. Simons we met at Mrs. Porchester's, who always tells everybody that he got his nose in Italy at the Renaissance, and claims to be descended somehow or other from La Bella Simonetta. So foolish, you know, dear, as if anybody believed it, and I'm sure some Jews are very good people, and personally I'd much rather they believed something— though, of course, it must be very inconvenient, what with not working on Saturdays, and circumcising the poor little babies, and everything depending on the new moon, and that funny kind of meat they have with such a slang-sounding name, and never being able to have bacon for breakfast. Still, there it was, and it was much better for the girl to marry him if she was really fond of him, though I believe young Freak was really devoted to her, and they're still great friends.' Not that there was ever a real engagement, only a sort of understanding with her father. But he's never married, you know, and lives all by himself in that big house next to the hospital, though he's very rich and distinguished now, and I know ever so many people have tried to get hold of him. There was Lady Mainwaring wanted him for that eldest girl of hers, though I remember saying at the time it was no use expecting a surgeon to be taken in by a figure that was all padding— they have so many opportunities of judging, you know, dear. Lady Levy seems to have had the knack of making people devoted to her, said Peter. Look at the sea-green incorruptible Levy. That's quite true, dear. She was a most delightful girl, and they say her daughter is just like her. I rather lost sight of them when she married, and you know your father didn't care much about business people, but I know everybody always said they were a model couple— in fact, it was a proverb that Sir Reuben was as well loved at home as he was hated abroad. I don't mean in foreign countries, you know, dear, just the proverbial way of putting things, like a saint abroad and a devil at home, only the other way on, reminding one of the pilgrim's progress. Yes, said Peter. I dare say the old man made one or two enemies. Dozens, dear, such a dreadful place, the city, isn't it? Everybody Ishmael's together— "'Though I don't suppose Sir Reuben would like to be called that, would he? "'Doesn't it mean illegitimate or not a proper Jew, anyway? "'I always did get confused with those Old Testament characters.' "'Lord Peter laughed and yawned. "'I think I'll turn in for an hour or two, he said. "'I must be back in town at eight. "'Parker's coming to breakfast.' 
The Duchess looked at the clock, which marked five minutes to three. I'll send up your breakfast at half past six, dear, she said. I hope you'll find everything all right. I told them just to slip a hot water bottle in. Those linen sheets are so chilly. You can put it out if it's in your way. Chapter 4 "'So there it is, Parker,' said Lord Peter, "'pushing his coffee-cup aside and lighting his after-breakfast pipe. "'You may find it leads you to something, "'though it don't seem to get me any further with my bathroom problem. "'Did you do anything more at that after I left?' "'No, but I've been on the roof this morning. "'The deuce you have! "'What an energetic devil you are, I say, Parker. "'I think this cooperative scheme is an uncommonly good one.' It's much easier to work on someone else's job than one's own. Gives one that delightful feeling of interfering and bossing about, combined with a glorious sensation that another fellow is taking all one's own work off one's hands. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, what? Did you find anything? Not very much. I looked for any footmarks, of course, but naturally, with all this rain, there wasn't a sign. Of course, if this were a detective story— there have been a convenient shower exactly an hour before the crime, and a beautiful set of marks which could only have come there between two and three in the morning. But this being real life in a London November, you might as well expect footprints in Niagara. I searched the roofs right along, and came to the jolly conclusion that any person in any blessed flat in the blessed row might have done it. All the staircases open onto the roof— and the leads are quite flat. You can walk along as easy as along Shaftesbury Avenue. Still, I've got some evidence that the body did walk along there. What's that? Parker brought out his pocketbook and extracted a few shreds of material, which he laid before his friend. One was caught in the gutter just above Thipps's bathroom window, another in a crack of the stone parapet just over it, and the rest came from the chimney stack behind, where they had caught in an iron stanchion. What do you make of them? Lord Peter scrutinized them very carefully through his lens. Interesting, he said. Damned interesting. Have you developed those plates, Bunter? He added, as that discreet assistant came in with the post. Yes, my lord. Caught anything? I don't know whether to call it anything or not, my lord, said Bunter dubiously. "'I'll bring the prince in.' "'Do,' said Whimsy. "'Hello. Here's our advertisement about the gold chain in the Times. "'Very nice it looks. "'Write, phone, or call 110A Piccadilly. "'Perhaps it would have been safer to put a box number, "'though I always think that the franker you are with people, "'the more you're likely to deceive them. "'So unused is the modern world to the open hand and the guileless heart, what?' "'But you don't think the fellow who left that chain on the body "'is going to give himself away by coming here and inquiring about it?' "'I don't, fathead,' said Lord Peter, "'with the easy politeness of the real aristocracy. "'That's why I've tried to get hold of the jeweller "'who originally sold the chain, see?' "'He pointed to the paragraph. "'It's not an old chain, hardly worn at all. "'Oh, thanks, Bunter.' Now, see here, Parker, these are the finger marks you noticed yesterday on the window sash and on the far edge of the bath. I'd overlooked them. I give you full credit for the discovery. 
I crawl, I grovel, my name is Watson. You need not say what you were just going to say, because I admit it all. Now we shall... Hello, hello, hello. The three men stared at the photographs. The criminal, said Lord Peter, bitterly, climbed over the roofs in the wet and not unnaturally got soot on his fingers. He arranged the body in the bath and wiped away all traces of himself except two, which he obligingly left to show us how to do our job. We learned from a smudge on the floor that he wore india-rubber boots, and from this admirable set of fingerprints on the edge of the bath, that he had the usual number of fingers and wore rubber gloves. That's the kind of man he is. Take the fool away, gentlemen. He put the prints aside and returned to an examination of the shreds of material in his hand. Suddenly he whistled softly. Do you make anything of these, Parker? They seem to me to be the ravelings of some coarse cotton stuff, a sheet, perhaps, or an improvised rope. Yes, said Lord Peter. Yes, it may be a mistake. It may be our mistake. I wonder. Tell me, do you think these tiny threads are long enough and strong enough to hang a man? He was silent, his long eyes narrowing into slits behind the smoke of his pipe. "'What do you suggest doing this morning?' asked Parker. "'Well,' said Lord Peter, "'it seems to me it's about time I took a hand in your job. "'Let's go round a park lane "'and see what Lark's Sir Reuben Levy was up to in bed last night.' "'And now, Mrs. Pemming, "'if you would be so kind as give me a blanket,' "'said Mr. Bunter, coming down into the kitchen.' and permit of me hanging a sheet across the lower part of this window, and drawing the screen across here, so, so as to shut off any reflections, if you understand me, we'll get to work. So Reuben Levy's cook, with her eyes upon Mr. Bunter's gentlemanly and well-tailored appearance, hastened to produce what was necessary. Her visitor placed on the table a basket containing a water-bottle, a silver-backed hairbrush, a pair of boots, a small roll of linoleum, and the letter of a self-made merchant to his son, bound in polished Morocco. He drew an umbrella from beneath his arm and added it to the collection. He then advanced a ponderous photographic machine and set it up in the neighbourhood of the kitchen range, then, spreading a newspaper over the fair scrubbed surface of the table, he began to roll up his sleeves and insinuate himself into a pair of surgical gloves. Sir Reuben Levy's valet, entering at the moment and finding him thus engaged, put aside the kitchen-maid, who was staring from a front-row position, and inspected the apparatus critically. Mr. Bunter nodded brightly to him, and uncorked a small bottle of grey powder. "'Odd sort of fish, your employer, isn't he?' said the valet carelessly. "'Very singular indeed,' said Mr. Bunter. "'Now, my dear,' he added ingratiatingly to the parlour-maid, "'I wonder if you'd just pour a little of this grey powder "'over the edge of the bottle while I'm holding it, "'and the same with this boot, here at the top. "'Thank you, Miss... what is your name? Price?' "'Oh, but you've got another name besides Price, haven't you? "'Mabel, eh? That's a name I'm uncommonly partial to.' "'That's very nicely done. You've a steady hand, Miss Mabel. See that? 
That's the finger marks, three there and two here, and smudged over in both places. No, don't you touch em, my dear, or you'll rub the bloom off. We'll stand em up here till they're ready to have their portraits taken. Now then, let's take the hairbrush next. Perhaps, Mrs. Pemming, you'd like to lift him up very carefully by the bristles. By the bristles, Mr. Bunter? If you please, Mrs. Pemming, and lay him here. Now, Miss Mabel, another little exhibition of your skill, if you please. Now, we'll try lamp black this time. Perfect. Couldn't have done it better myself. Ah, there's a beautiful set. No smudges this time. That'll interest his lordship. Now the little book. No, I'll pick that up myself with these gloves, you see, and by the edges. I'm a careful criminal, Mrs. Pemming. I don't want to leave any traces. Dust the cover all over, Miss Mabel. Now this side. That's the way to do it. Lots of prints and no smudges, all according to plan. Oh, please, Mr. Graves, you mustn't touch it. It's as much as my place is worth to have it touched. Do you have to do much of this sort of thing? inquired Mr. Graves, from a superior standpoint. Any amount, replied Mr. Bunter, with a groan calculated to appeal to Mr. Graves' heart and unlock his confidence. If you'd kindly hold one end of this bit of linoleum, Mrs. Pemming, I'll hold up this end while Miss Mabel operates. Yes, Mr. Graves, it's a hard life, valeting by day and developing by night, morning tea at any time from six-thirty to eleven, and criminal investigation at all hours. It's wonderful, the ideas these rich men with nothing to do get into their heads. I wonder you stand it, said Mr. Graves. Now there's none of that here. A quiet, orderly, domestic life, Mr. Bunter, has much to be said for it. Meals at regular hours, decent, respectable families to dinner, none of your painted women, and no valeting at night. There's much to be said for it. I don't hold with Hebrews as a rule, Mr. Bunter, and of course I understand that you may find it to your advantage to be in a titled family, but there's less thought of that these days, and I will say for a self-made man, no one could call Sir Reuben vulgar, and my lady at any rate is county. Miss Ford she was, one of the Hampshire Fords, and both of them always most considerate. I agree with you, Mr. Graves. His lordship and me have never held with being narrow-minded. Why, yes, my dear, of course, it's a footmark. This is the washstand linoleum. A good Jew can be a good man, that's what I have always said, and regular hours and considerate habits have a great deal to recommend them. Very simple in his tastes now, Sir Reuben, isn't he? For such a rich man, I mean. Very simple indeed, said the cook. The meals he and her ladyship have when they're by themselves with Miss Rachel. Well, there now. If it wasn't for the dinners, which is always good when there's company, I'd be wasting my talents and education here, if you understand me, Mr. Bunter. Mr. Bunter added the handle of the umbrella to his collection and began to pin a sheet across the window, aided by the housemaid. Admirable, said he. Now, if I might have this blanket on the table and another on a towel-horse, or something of that kind, by way of a background. You're very kind, Mrs. Pemming. Ah, I wish his lordship never wanted valeting at night. Many's the time I've sat up till three and four, and up again to call him early to go off Sherlocking at the other end of the country. And the mud he gets on his clothes and his boots. 
I'm sure it's a shame, Mr. Bunter, said Mrs. Pemming warmly. Lo, I calls it. In my opinion, police work ain't no fit occupation for a gentleman, let alone a lordship. Everything made so difficult, too, said Mr. Bunter, nobly sacrificing his employer's character and his own feelings in a good cause. Boots chucked into a corner, clothes hung up on the floor, as they say. That's often the case with these men as are born with a silver spoon in their mouths, said Mr. Graves. Now Sir Reuben, he's never lost his good old-fashioned habits. Clothes folded up neat, boots puts out in his dressing-room, so as a man could get them in the morning, everything made easy. He forgot them the night before last, though. The clothes, not the boots. Always thoughtful for others is Sir Reuben. Ah, I hope nothing's happened to him. Indeed, no, poor gentleman, chimed in the cook. And as for what they're saying, that he'd have gone out surreptitious-like to do something he didn't odd, well, I'd never believe it of him, Mr. Bunter, not if I was to take my dying oath upon it. Ah, said Mr. Bunter, adjusting his arc lamps and connecting them with the nearest electric light. And that's more than most of us could say of them as pays us. Five foot ten, said Lord Peter, and not an inch more. He peered dubiously at the depression in the bedclothes, and measured it a second time with the gentleman scout's Vady Meekum. Parker entered this particular in a neat pocket-book. I suppose, he said, a six-foot-two man might leave a five-foot-ten depression if he curled himself up. Have you any scotch blood in you, Parker? inquired his colleague bitterly. Not that I know of, replied Parker. Why? Because of all the cautious, ungenerous, deliberate and cold-blooded devils I know, said Lord Peter, you are the most cautious, ungenerous, deliberate and cold-blooded. Here am I, sweating my brains out, to introduce a really sensational incident into your dull and disreputable little police investigation, and you refuse to show a single spark of enthusiasm. Well, it's no good jumping at conclusions. Jump? You don't even crawl distantly within sight of a conclusion. I believe if you caught the cat with her head in the cream jug, you'd say it was conceivable that the jug was empty when she got there. Well, it would be conceivable, wouldn't it? Curse you! said Lord Peter. He screwed his monocle into his eye and bent over the pillow breathing hard and tightly through his nose. "'Here, give me the tweezers,' he said presently. "'Good heavens, man, don't blow like that. You might be a whale!' He nipped up an almost invisible object from the linen. "'What is it?' asked Parker. "'It's a hair,' said Whimsy grimly, his hard eyes growing harder. "'Let's go look at Levy's hats, shall we? And you might just ring for that fellow with a churchyard name, do you mind?' Mr. Graves, when summoned, found Lord Peter Whimsey squatting on the floor of the dressing-room before a row of hats arranged upside down before him. "'Here you are,' said that nobleman cheerfully. "'Now, Graves, this is a guessing competition, a sort of three-hat trick, to mix metaphors. Here are nine hats, including three top hats. Do you identify all these hats as belonging to Sir Reuben Levy? You do? Very good.' Now, I have three guesses as to which hat he wore the night he disappeared. 
And if I guess right, I win. If I don't, you win. See? Ready? Go. I suppose you know the answer yourself, by the way. Do I understand your lordship to be asking which hat Sir Reuben wore when he went out on Monday night, your lordship? No, you don't understand a bit, said Lord Peter. I'm asking if you know. Don't tell me. I'm going to guess. I do know your lordship, said Mr. Graves reprovingly. Well, said Lord Peter, as he was dining at the Ritz, he wore a topper. Here are three toppers. In three guesses, I'd be bound to hit the right one, wouldn't I? That don't seem very sporting. I'll take one guess. It was this one. He indicated the hat next the window. Am I right, Graves? Have I got the prize? That is the hat in question, my lord, said Mr. Graves without excitement. Thanks, said Lord Peter. That's all I wanted to know. Ask Bunter to step up, would you? Mr. Bunter stepped up with an aggrieved air, and his usually smooth hair ruffled by the focusing cloth. Oh, there you are, Bunter, said Lord Peter. Look here. Here I am, my lord, said Mr. Bunter with respectful reproach. But if you'll excuse me saying so, downstairs is where I ought to be, with all those young women about. They'll be fingering the evidence, my lord. I cry you mercy, said Lord Peter, but I've quarrelled hopelessly with Mr. Parker and distracted the estimable graves, and I want you to tell me what fingerprints you have found. I shan't be happy till I get it, so don't be harsh with me, Bunter. Well, my lord, your lordship understands I haven't photographed them yet, but I won't deny that their appearance is interesting, my lord. The little book off the night-table, my lord, has only the marks of one set of fingers. There's a little scar on the right thumb, which makes them easily recognized. The hairbrush, too, my lord, has only the same set of marks. The umbrella, the tooth-glass, and the boots all have two sets. The hand with the scarred thumb, which I take to be Sir Reuben's, my lord, and a set of smudges superimposed upon them, if I may put it that way, my lord, which may or may not be the same hand in rubber gloves. I could tell you better when I've got the photographs made, to measure them, my lord. The linoleum in front of the washstand is very gratifying indeed, my lord, if you will excuse my mentioning it. Besides the marks of Sir Reuben's boots which your lordship pointed out, there's a print of a man's naked foot, a much smaller one, my lord, not much more than a ten-inch sock, I should say, if you ask me. Lord Peter's face became irradiated with almost a dim, religious light. A mistake, he breathed. A mistake, a little one, but he can't afford it. When was the linoleum washed last, Bunter? Monday morning, my lord. The housemaid did it and remembered to mention it. Only remark she's made yet, and it's to the point. The other domestics... His features expressed disdain. What did I say, Parker? Five foot ten and not an inch longer. And he didn't dare to use the hairbrush. Beautiful. But he had to risk the top hat. Gentlemen can't walk home in the rain late at night without a hat, you know, Parker. Look, what do you make of it? Two sets of fingerprints on everything but the book and the brush. Two sets of feet on the linoleum. And two kinds of hair in the hat. He lifted the top hat to the light and extracted the evidence with tweezers. Think of it, Parker. To remember the hairbrush and forget the hat. 
to remember his fingers all the time, and to make that one careless step on the tell-tale linoleum. Here they are, you see, black hair and tan hair, black hair in the bowler and the Panama, and black and tan in last night's topper. And then, just to make certain that we're on the right track, just one little auburn hair on the pillow, on this pillow, Parker, which isn't quite in the right place. It almost brings tears to my eyes. Do you mean to say, said the detective slowly, I mean to say, said Lord Peter, that it was not Sir Reuben Levy whom the cook saw last night on the doorstep. I say that it was another man, perhaps a couple of inches shorter, who came here in Levy's clothes to let himself in with Levy's latchkey. Oh, he was a bold, cunning devil, Parker. He had on Levy's boots and every stitch of Levy's clothing down to the skin. He had rubber gloves on his hands, which he never took off, and he did everything he could to make us think that Levy slept here last night. He took his chances and won. He walked upstairs, he undressed, he even washed and cleaned his teeth, though he didn't use the hairbrush for fear of leaving red hairs on it. He had to guess what Levy did with boots and clothes. One guess was wrong and the other right, as it happened. The bed must look as if it had been slept in, so he gets in and lies there in his victim's very pyjamas. Then, in the morning, sometime, probably in the deadest hour between two and three, he gets up, dresses himself in his own clothes that he has brought with him in a bag, and creeps downstairs. If anybody wakes, he is lost, but he is a bold man, and he takes his chance. He knows that people do not wake as a rule, and they don't wake. He opens the street door, which he left on the latch when he came in. He listens for the stray passer-by or the policeman on his beat. He slips out. He pulls the door quietly to with the latch-key. He walks briskly away in rubber-soled shoes. He's the kind of criminal who isn't complete without rubber-soled shoes. In a few minutes, he is at Hyde Park Corner. After that, he paused and added, He did all that, and unless he had nothing at stake, he had everything at stake. Either Sir Reuben Levy has been spirited away for some silly practical joke, or the man with the auburn hair has the guilt of murder upon his soul. Dear me, ejaculated the detective, you're very dramatic about it. Lord Peter passed his hand rather wearily over his hair. My true friend, he murmured in a voice that charged with emotion. You recall me to the nursery rhymes of my youth, the sacred duty of flippancy. There was an old man of Whitehaven who danced a quadrille with the raven, but they said it's absurd to encourage that bird, so they smashed that old man of Whitehaven. That's the correct attitude, Parker. Here's a poor old buffer spirited away, such a joke, and I don't believe he'd hurt a fly himself. That makes it funnier. Do you know, Parker, I don't care frightfully about this case after all. Which this or yours? Both. I say, Parker, shall we go quietly home and have lunch and go to the Coliseum? You can, if you like, replied the detective. But you forget I do this for my bread and butter. And I haven't even that excuse, said Lord Peter. Well, what's the next move? What would you do in my case? I'd do some good hard grind said Parker. 
I'd distrust every bit of work Sug ever did, and I'd get the family history of every tenant of every flat in Queen Caroline Mansions. I'd examine all their box rooms and roof traps, and I would inveigle them into conversations and suddenly bring in the words body and pince-nez and see if they wriggled, like those modern psycho-what's-his-names. You would, would you? said Lord Peter with a grin. Well, we've exchanged cases, you know, so just you toddle off and do it. I'm going to have a jolly time at Wyndham's. Parker made a grimace. Well, he said, I don't suppose you'd ever do it, so I'd better. You'll never become a professional till you learn to do a little work, Whimsy. How about lunch? I'm invited out, said Lord Peter magnificently. I'll run round and change at the club. Can't feed with Freddy Arbuthnot in these bags. Bunter? Yes, my lord. Pack up if you're ready, and come round and wash my face and hands for me at the club. Work here for another two hours, my lord. Can't do with less than thirty minutes' exposure. The current's none too strong. You see how I'm bullied by my own man, Parker? Well, I must bear it, I suppose. Ta-ta! He whistled his way downstairs. The conscientious Mr. Parker, with a groan, settled down to a systematic search through Sir Reuben Levy's papers, with the assistance of a plate of ham sandwiches and a bottle of bass. Lord Peter and the Honourable Freddy Arbuthnot, looking together like an advertisement for gents' trouserings, strolled into the dining-room at Wyndham's. "'Haven't seen you for an age,' said the Honourable Freddy. "'What have you been doing with yourself?' "'Oh, foolin' about,' said Lord Peter languidly. "'Thick or clear, sir?' inquired the waiter of the Honourable Freddy. "'Which'll you have, Whimsy?' said that gentleman, transferring the burden of selection to his guest. "'They're both equally poisonous.' "'Well, clear's less trouble to lick out of the spoon,' said Lord Peter. "'Clear,' said the Honourable Freddy. "'Consomme polonais,' agreed the waiter. "'Very nice, sir.' Conversation languished until the Honourable Freddy found a bone in the filleted sole, and sent for the head waiter to explain its presence. When this matter had been adjusted, Lord Peter found energy to say, "'Sorry to hear about your governor, old man.' "'Yes, poor old buffer,' said the Honourable Freddy. "'They say he can't last long now. What? Oh, the Montrachet ought eight. There's nothing fit to drink in this place,' he added gloomily. After this deliberate insult to a noble vintage, there was a further pause, till Lord Peter said, "'How's change?' "'Rotten,' said the Honourable Freddy. He helped himself gloomily to salmis of game. "'Can I do anything?' asked Lord Peter. "'Oh, no, thanks. Very decent of you, but it'll pan out all right in time.' "'This isn't a bad salmis,' said Lord Peter. "'I've eaten worse,' admitted his friend. "'What about those Argentines?' inquired Lord Peter. "'Here, waiter, there's a bit of cork in my glass.' "'Cork?' cried the Honourable Freddy, with something approaching animation. "'You'll hear about this, waiter. "'It's an amazing thing a fellow who's paid to do the job "'can't manage to take a cork out of a bottle. "'What do you say, Argentines? "'Gone all to hell. "'Old Levy bunking off like that's knocked the bottom out of the market.' "'You don't say so,' said Lord Peter.' "'What do you suppose has happened to the old man?' "'Cursed if I know,' said the Honourable Freddy. 
Knocked on the head by the bears, I should think. Perhaps he's gone off on his own, suggested Lord Peter. Double life, you know. Giddy old blighters, some of these city men. Oh, no, said the Honourable Freddy, faintly roused. No, hang it all, Whimsy, I wouldn't care to say that. He's a decent old domestic bird, and his daughter's a charming girl. Besides, he's straight enough. He'd do you down fast enough, but he wouldn't let you down. Old Anderson is badly cut up about it. Who's Anderson? Chap with property out there. He belongs here. He was going to meet Levy on Tuesday. He's afraid those railway people will get in now, and then it's all U.P. Who's running the railway people over here? inquired Lord Peter. Yankee blighter, John P. Milligan. He's got an option, or says he has. You can't trust these brutes. Can't Anderson hold on? Anderson isn't Levy. Hasn't got the shekels. Besides, he's only one. Levy covers the ground. He could boycott Milligan's beastly railway if he liked. That's where he got the pull, you see. Believe I met the Milligan man somewhere, said Lord Peter thoughtfully. Ain't he a hulking brute with black hair and a beard? You're thinking of somebody else, said the Honourable Freddy. Milligan don't stand any higher than I do, unless you call five feet ten hulking, and he's bald anyway. Lord Peter considered this over the Gorgonzola. Then he said, Didn't know Levy had a charming daughter. Oh, yes, said the Honourable Freddy, with an elaborate detachment. Met her and Mamma last year abroad, and so I got to know the old man. He's been very decent. Let me into this Argentine business on the ground floor, don't you now? Well, said Lord Peter, you might do worse. Money's money, ain't it? And Lady Levy is quite a redeeming point. At least my mother knew her people. Oh, she's all right, said the Honourable Freddy. And the old man's nothing to be ashamed of nowadays. He's self-made, of course, but he don't pretend to be anything else. No side. Toddles off to business on a ninety-six bus every morning. Can't make up my mind to taxis, my boy, he says. I had to look out every halfpenny when I was a young man, and I can't get out of it now. Though if he's taken his family out, nothing's too good. Rachel, that's the girl, always laughs at the old man's little economies. I suppose they've sent for Lady Levy, said Lord Peter. I suppose so, agreed the other. I'd better pop round and express sympathy or something, what? Wouldn't look well not to, do you think? But it's deuced awkward. What am I to say? I don't think it matters much what you say, said Lord Peter, helpfully. I should ask if you can do anything. Thanks, said the lover. I will. Energetic young man, count on me. Always at your service. Ring me up any time, the day or night. That's the line to take, don't you think? That's the idea, said Lord Peter. Mr. John P. Milligan, the London representative of the Great Milligan Railroad and Shipping Company, was dictating code cables to his secretary in an office in Lombard Street when a card was brought up to him, bearing the simple legend, Lord Peter Whimsey, Marlborough Club. Mr. Milligan was annoyed at the interruption, but like many of his nation, if he had a weak point, it was the British aristocracy. He postponed for a few minutes the elimination from the map of a modest but promising farm, and directed that the visitor should be shown up. "'Good afternoon,' said that nobleman, ambling genially in. "'It's most uncommonly good of you to let me come round, wasting your time like this. 
I'll try not to be too long about it, though I'm not awfully good at coming to the point. My brother never would let me stand for the county, you know. Said I wandered on so nobody'd know what I was talking about. Pleased to meet you, Lord Wimsey, said Mr. Milligan. Won't you take a seat? Thanks, said Lord Peter. But I'm not a peer, you know. That's my brother Denver. My name's Peter. It's a silly name, I always think. So old world and full of homely virtue and that sort of thing. But my godfathers and godmothers in my baptism are responsible for that, I suppose. Officially. Which is rather hard on them, you know, as they didn't actually choose it. But we always have a Peter after the third duke, who betrayed five kings somewhere about the War of the Roses. Though come to think of it, it ain't anything to be proud of. Still one has to make the best of it. Mr. Milligan, thus ingeniously placed at that disadvantage which attends ignorance, manoeuvred for position, and offered his interrupter a corona-corona. "'Thanks awfully,' said Lord Peter. "'Though you really mustn't tempt me to stay here burbling all afternoon. "'By Jove, Mr. Milligan, "'if you offer people such comfortable chairs and cigars like these, "'I wonder they don't come and live in your office.' "'He added mentally, "'I wish to goodness I could get those long-toed boots off you. "'How's a man to know the size of your feet, "'and a head like a potato? "'It's enough to make one swear.' "'Say now, Lord Peter,' said Mr. Milligan. "'Can I do anything for you?' "'Well, do you know,' said Lord Peter, "'I'm wondering if you would. "'It's damn cheek to ask you, "'but fact is, it's my mother, you know, "'wonderful woman, but don't realise what it means, "'demands on the time of a busy man like you. "'We don't understand hustle over here, you know, Mr. Milligan.' "'Now don't you mention that,' said Mr. Milligan. "'I'd be surely charmed to do anything to oblige the Duchess.' He felt a momentary qualm as to whether a duke's mother were also a duchess, but breathed more freely as Lord Peter went on. Thanks, that's uncommonly good of you. Well, now, it's like this. My mother, most energetic, self-sacrificing woman, don't you see, is thinking of getting up a sort of charity bazaar down at Denver this winter, in aid of the church roof, you know. Very sad case, Mr. Milligan. Fine old antique. "'early English windows and decorated angel roof and all that. "'All tumbling to pieces, rain pouring in and so on. "'Vicar catching rheumatism at early service, "'owing to the draught blowing in over the altar. "'You know the sort of thing. "'They've got a man down starting on it, "'little beggar called Thips. "'Lives with an aged mother in Battersea. "'Vulgar little beast, but quite good on angel roofs and things, I'm told.' "'At this point Lord Peter watched his interlocutor narrowly.' but finding that this rigmarole produced in him no reaction more startling than polite interest, tinged with faint bewilderment, he abandoned this line of investigation and proceeded. I say, I beg your pardon, frightfully. I'm afraid I'm being beastly long-winded. Fact is, my mother is getting up this bazaar, and she thought it'd be an awfully interesting sideshow to have some lectures, sort of little talks, you know, by eminent businessmen of all nations— how I did it kind of touch, you know. A drop of oil with a kerosene king, cash conscience and cocoa and so on. It would interest people down there no end. You see, all my mother's friends will be there, and we've none of us any money. Not what you'd call money, I mean. I expect our incomes wouldn't pay your telephone calls, would they? But we like awfully to hear about the people who can make money. Gives us a sort of uplifted feeling, don't you know? 
Well, anyway, I mean, my mother'd be frightfully pleased and grateful to you, Mr. Milligan, if you'd come down and give us a few words as a representative American. It needn't take more than ten minutes or so, you know, because the local people can't understand much beyond shootin' and huntin', and my mother's crowd can't keep their minds on anything more than ten minutes together. But we'd really appreciate it very much if you'd come and stay a day or two and just give us a little breezy word on the almighty dollar. Why, yes, said Mr. Milligan. I'd like to, Lord Peter. It's kind of the Duchess to suggest it. It's a very sad thing when these fine old antiques begin to wear out. I'll come with great pleasure, and perhaps you'd be kind enough to accept a little donation to the restoration fund. This unexpected development nearly brought Lord Peter up all standing. To pump, by means of an ingenious lie, a hospitable gentleman, whom you are inclined to suspect of a peculiarly malicious murder, and to accept from him, in the course of the proceedings, a large cheque for a charitable object, has something about it unpalatable to any but the hardened Secret Service agent. Lord Peter temporised. "'That's awfully decent of you,' he said. "'I'm sure they'd be no end grateful, but you'd better not give it to me, you know. I might spend it or lose it. I'm not very reliable, I'm afraid. The vicar's the right person. The Reverend Constantine Throgmorton, St. John before the Latin Gate Vicarage, Duke's Denver, if you'd like to send it there.' "'I will,' said Mr. Milligan. "'Will you write it out now for a thousand pounds, Scoot, "'in case it slips my mind later?' "'The secretary, a sandy-haired young man "'with a long chin and no eyebrows, "'silently did as he was requested. "'Lord Peter looked from the bald head of Mr. Milligan "'to the red head of the secretary, "'hardened his heart, and tried again. "'Well, I'm no end grateful to you, Mr. Milligan, "'and so will my mother be when I tell her.' I'll let you know the date of the bazaar. It's not quite settled yet, and I've got to see some other businessmen, don't you know? I thought of asking someone from one of the big newspaper combines to represent British advertising talent, what? And a friend of mine promises me a leading German financier. Very interesting, if there ain't too much feeling against it down in the country, and I'll have to find somebody or other to do the Hebrew point of view. I thought of asking Levy, you know, only he's floated off in this inconvenient way. Yes, said Mr. Milligan. That's a very curious thing, though I don't mind saying, Lord Peter, that it's a convenience to me. He had a cinch on my railroad combine, but I'd nothing against him personally, and if he turns up after I've brought off a little deal I've got on, I'd be happy to give him the right hand of welcome. A vision passed through Lord Peter's mind, of Sir Reuben kept somewhere in custody till a financial crisis was over. This was exceedingly possible, and far more agreeable than his earlier conjecture. It also agreed better with the impression he was forming of Mr. Milligan. "'Well, it's a rum go,' said Lord Peter. "'But I dare say he had his reason. Much better not to inquire into people's reasons, you know what? Especially as a police friend of mine who's connected with the case— says the old Johnny dyed his hair before he went. Out of the tail of his eye, Lord Peter saw the red-headed secretary add up five columns of figures simultaneously and jot down the answer. Dyed his hair, did he? said Mr. Milligan. Dyed it red, said Lord Peter. The secretary looked up. Odd thing is, continued Whimsy, 
They can't lay hands on the bottle. Something fishy there, don't you think, what? The secretary's interest seemed to have evaporated. He inserted a fresh sheet into his loose-leaf ledger and carried forward a row of digits from the preceding page. I dare say there's nothing in it, said Lord Peter, rising to go. Well, it's uncommonly good of you to be bothered with me like this, Mr. Milligan. My mother'll be no end pleased. She'll write you about the date. I'm charmed, said Mr. Milligan. Very pleased to have met you. Mr. Scoot rose silently to open the door, uncoiling as he did so a portentous length of thin leg, hitherto hidden by the desk. With a mental sigh, Lord Peter estimated him at six foot four. "'It's a pity I can't put Scoot's head on Milligan's shoulders,' said Lord Peter, emerging into the swirl of the city. "'And what will my mother say?' This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Whose Body Part 2 of 7 by Dorothy Sayers. If you have enjoyed this book, feel free to visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and sign up to be a financial supporter. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook. We try to give you a lot of bang for your buck. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>